Uh, I titled this sermon, The Surprisingly Normal Christian Life. Surprisingly normal Christian life. I'll say more about that in a second. Let's get into these first couple verses here. Woe to the tempter of God's children. So remember where we left off last week? Jesus has given us a glimpse into the horrors of hell and the glories of heaven. And now he's transitioning here to his disciples. Notice this at verse 1. And he said to his disciples now, he's talking to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. He goes on, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Okay, and then I added in here the very first part of the next verse, pay attention to yourselves. I, You've got to remember, in the original language here, there are no verse divisions or chapter divisions. These have been added for our benefit, for study and location. I think that verse 3, that first little part, fits far better at that previous section rather than broken up into the next one. So, so the call is pay attention to yourselves. Disciples, that's us, followers of Jesus. We're listening, and he's just speaking to us. He's given us a warning, and he says, now, be on your guard. Okay. Temptations to sin are sure to come. That word, the word is scandalon. It, it means uh, stumbling blocks are sure to come. Uh, a, a cause of stumbling is going to be in your path. And what, this speaks to a reality. Jesus himself was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Okay? He knows from his own experience in walking on this earth what it is like to live in this earth. It, we have the world with a system that is organized sin. That's culture in, in a very kind of basic form. Culture is organized sin. Uh, apart from Christ, it is godless, and it is not uh, honoring to him. That is an influence in our life. It's all around us. We have the devil, the tempter, right? The enemy of those who carry the name of Christ. He is our enemy, and he is at work with his uh, minions, as it were, to bring our lives uh, inconsistent with the gospel. You carry the name Christ, I want to drag it through the mud then. That's his goal. Steal, kill, and destroy. And then we have our greatest enemy. It's the person you see when you look in the mirror. The flesh. The, the you. The, the B.C. of you. The before Christ you. The old you. That, that you that is... This is to be buried in the grave and, and kept there, but wants to keep coming out and giving expression to sin and the old way before Christ. You realize that Satan can only tempt a Christian. He cannot compel. The only thing that the enemy of your soul can do is tempt you to sin. You are the one who chooses the sin. So you can never say to the Lord, hey, it wasn't my fault. You don't understand. I just, the enemy just took me down. Not a, a Christian can't say that. A Christian is set free. A Christian is free to obey. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Listen to the woe now. When Jesus uses that word, woe, that's a big word. Significant. 
He is warning in the highest possible way. Be on your guard. Woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the tempter of God's children. Hmm. The reality of temptation, but Jesus dials into the source of temptations. Who is the one in your life who is, is, is inclining others to sin? Who is the one that when you're around them provides an inclination in your life away from godliness to make worldliness normal and godliness strange? That is a tempter, right? A tempter. Christians are to be the opposite. Those who, when we are around them, they make godliness look normal, surprisingly normal, and worldliness strange. The source of temptations. Now just think, as he's speaking these words, okay, Judas is there. The betrayer of Christ is in the midst. He's hearing these words. But in case we're too hard on Judas, so is Peter. You remember Peter? The fear of man, his own betrayal of Christ, denial of Christ, really. I I don't know him. I don't know him. The fear of man. He was prayed for. He repented of that sin. But then, in the early church, in the Jerusalem council, right, Peter fell prey again to the fear of man. There it was suggesting that that when he's around the Jews, he should fall back into the Jewish practice, right? He was afraid of these people and making it hard. He was becoming a cause of stumbling for the little ones, the, the weaker vessels, the Gentiles in that church. When you blow it into our lives, you have to say it this way. My sin is never just my problem. Now let's collectively just say this together. Okay, you ready? My sin is never just my problem. Do you believe that? There is no such thing as secret sin. Individual sin, as it were. Now responsibility, yeah, that that falls on me. I am responsible for my sin. I can't carry the responsibility necessarily for, for everyone else's decisions, but how I respond to those decisions is my responsibility. So let's just kind of make this a little closer to home. My sin is your problem. When I fail to honor God in my life, when I choose to make worldliness normal and godliness seem strange, it harms you. That weight is a weight that God has applied to me as a pastor, as an elder. We carry this as shepherds. But, Let's go beyond that. Those who call Good Shepherd their home church, members of Good Shepherd, you carry the name of Christ, you represent the the church, you might even have a bumper sticker on your car, which I hope you do. Your sin is not just your problem. You represent. And your sin can negatively impact those around you, certainly in our community as well. Fathers, Mothers, your sin in your life can very literally be a stumbling block for the little ones in your home. If you make sin common, normal, acceptable, appeased in your home, 
if you excuse responses that are sinful and wrong and you make them normal in your home, what are you doing for your children? You're causing them to stumble. Jesus says, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to do that. What's he trying to get to us? It's a big deal. We need to take responsibility for our obedience, for our sin. Hmm. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. You see the inconsistency? Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no scandalon. Same word. There is no cause for stumbling. He is not a temptation for others to trip up on him because he is genuinely, from the heart, loving his brother. Now, if he's saying he's loving his brother, uh, he's, he's loving God, but he hates his brother. So just imagine that in this, in this room. Let's say that we have two believers in this room. They're both members of the church, and they hate one another, and they're okay with that. Guess what? That's like a speed bump outside of Costco, those big ones that make you hit your head, you know. That was the old Costco, never mind. Okay, that's a problem for this church. Now, when I came years ago, we had a couple families. They were at odds, and they had settled in that place. They were okay with it. And I was not. And so we prayed as elders, and we, we sat down. We tried to confront this situation. It was like two boxers that had just, just gotten so tired of fighting. They were sitting in their corner, glaring at each other, but they would, they would come on Sunday morning. They would sing praise to God and not say a word to each other. Week after week, I'm watching this happen. I can see it. And I'm saying, this is not Okay. This is a scandal on in our body. This is going to be a, a, a huge problem. This is our problem, not just their problem. It gets very real, friends, because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We need to see the scope of this call. It is a big deal. Sin in my life is a big deal, and it's quite harmful to you. We have to call it what it is. We have to address it. We have to take it seriously. The call to be righteous and holy, to lean on Christ and to grow in godliness is a significant call. Hmm. The little ones here are not just little children. I want you to think about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. In this group, you have Pharisees in earshot. Okay, The, the ones with the hard hearts and all the judgment that they point the finger. They are appalled that Jesus is eating and ministering to tax collectors and sinners, the catch-all category for those who care nothing about the righteousness of law-keeping. They have found hope in Christ. They've found a Savior, and here they are. There's a whole group of them. I would say in that context, those are probably the little ones he's referring to. They're the new Christians, the baby followers of Christ, and they are vulnerable and so Jesus addresses his followers, and he says, be aware, be aware. There is responsibility. You have to take great care with these young believers as they come in. They're impressionable. Don't make sin normal and acceptable to them. I'm working in a counseling situation with a guy who has grown up under a pastor who is 
uh, quite often exploding at people and like loud, uh, irate scenes of just anger, just rah! The problem is, is that no one in that man's life, that pastor's life, has addressed this sin with him and he has normalized it as, I guess, normal behavior of a pastor. So the man that I'm seeking to help and, 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 and point this out to is having a hard time distinguishing the problem in this. Oh, that's not acceptable? No, it's not acceptable. It's not like Christ. That's not okay. The pastor became a scandal on, a stumbling block for a young man who needed a, an example of self-control, of a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, this will make you stay awake at night when you think about it because we are all works in progress, are we not? And so grace, 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 and gospel must ring out in all of this. But we need to carry how significant it is. This responsibility is ours. We are not just saved in the righteousness of Christ and then told to sit back in the lawn chair and sin it up that grace may abound. We are called forward in our walk of holiness week after week. How did I grow? Am I targeting the sin that I see in my life? Am I inviting constructive feedback? What am I not seeing? And how can I grow? Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. Now, verse 3b through 4, rebuking, repenting, releasing, and I might add, repeat. If we're going to go four R's, that's the repeating would be the fourth. Listen to how these verses unfold. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in one day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, here comes a command, you must forgive him. That's a command to obey right there. Wow. Jesus enters into this this dynamic of relationships and righteousness. They, they, they get really uh, close to our hearts really quick. Because if we love people, we're going to find ourselves in situations where repentance is needed and forgiveness is requested. How will we respond? What will it look like? Let's begin with the first R, a brotherly rebuke. First to say that this is a brother. There's a relationship here, and sin has been committed. Now, sometimes people say, well, you know, the, this guy did not sin against me, therefore I don't have any right to speak up. I don't, I don't agree. If we love one another, and we are in this kind of relationship with one another, and, and we see a brother or sister who is choosing a, a pattern of sin, or they're hurting people with an active, you know, caving to sin, love speaks up love should intervene and say uh you know correct me if i'm wrong here but when you responded this way i don't know i i i just wonder if maybe that's sinful you see what i'm doing i'm not coming in to pound the gavel point the finger how dare you no there is a, an investigative questioning 
tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this may be sin. Hmm. A brotherly rebuke. Friends, the, the family of God functions in this way. In fact, if we walk faithfully together in this way, then the occasion will be rare where the elders need to be involved because it's taken that ratcheting up of pressure to reach that place. If brother to brother, sister to sister, right, we're working and loving one another this way, we can all collectively grow in righteousness. So, Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse the kisses of an enemy. There are some people who dread conflict to the point where they would choose to just ignore it completely. Oh, everything's great. Even at the request, was that, did I respond? Oh yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. But in your heart, you know that was, not a, that was not good. It was sin. Love has to care enough to speak these words. S- to speak up. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Hmm. It takes courage. It takes grace. It takes wisdom. In fact, I was working with the guys at a men's event, and, and I talked about the difference between a surgeon's blade and a murderer's knife, right? Both cut. One cuts in order to heal. The other cuts in order to kill. That is not our goal. A loving confrontation of a brother or sister in sin, a husband or wife or child, is to go and say with courage, I am not holier than thou, but I love you. And I know we all struggle with sin. And I, I, just, I just want to share, this is what I have witnessed or this is what I saw happen and I want to put this on your radar. You may have not even noticed. I may be wrong. Maybe I saw it, you know, there, maybe there's more of the story. But I just want to say these words. Timing is important. If the person is literally blowing up right then, it may not be the best time to be like, Brother, um, you know, maybe let the person calm down a bit, get their brain going again, not just raw emotion. We should be a congregation increasingly, friends, that love one another this way. More and more, more and more. So much of family dysfunction is rooted in, the f- in, in, in fear of this kind of love. Just, just have the courage to say Gently, lovingly, graciously. I think this may be sin. To go to family members and say, if you see something in my life, you have my permission. Come, love me enough to put this on my radar. Tell me. Hmm. Now, the flip side of this is, how do you receive rebuke? The ring of rebuke is a, is a startling thing, is it not? When someone graciously comes and puts something on your, on your radar, you have to choose, am I going to receive it and repent? Or am I going to reject it? And what typically follows is, throw some stones your way, right? That's defensiveness. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. 
Oh, the inclination goes back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? Adam and Eve and the serpent. It's not my fault. I was only reacting. Uh, don't use that line. Just That's not a biblical re- reality. That's a, that's a category. Your reaction, you're responsible for. You can never be just the victim. You're responsible for the way you react before God, even when you're sinned against. Will we be humble enough to receive rebuke, to receive a word of love from another? Now, to be clear, it may not be 100% dialed in. There may be some, some, some misunderstanding or more to the story, but there tends to be some fire where there's smoke. And if nothing more, we can say, Lord, I don't see what they're saying, but help me look, because I'm pretty sure there's somewhere in here that I can call sin and repent. All this takes growth. It is not in us instinctually to respond this way, to rebuke. Honesty. Be honest with yourself. Be humble in receiving these words. Ask the Lord to to grow your humility, to to receive words of kindness and love, even when they're rebuking you and admonishing you toward righteousness. Now, what may be the hardest part of the equation is releasing, forgiving. How do I release an offense? How do I forgive someone who has wronged me? They've sinned against me, and I have to now say at their request, this is what I did, I am sorry, I'm, I'm turning from this behavior, will you forgive me? By the way, if you're asking and apologizing, make sure you ask for forgiveness. Give the person an opportunity to release you. Don't just say, sorry, not sorry. Right? No, say, I, this is what I did. I'm so sorry that it hurt you. I was wrong. It was sin. Will you forgive me? Those basic, just that order is so simple and it's so hard. In us, it's so hard. Will you forgive me? Will you? And when those words come your way, you have a decision to make. Our inclination is to say, well, I don't want to let this go yet. I have reason to hold on to this offense. I want to hold it. At least give me some time to be mad. I want to, I want to get some of this out of it. I'm just going to wring this out a little bit more. Release. Release. This is what Thomas Watson wrote. It's what's one of the greatest definitions of forgiveness. Listen to this. We forgive we release others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we, uh, when we will not do our enemies mischief, number two. When we wish them well, number three. And grieve at their calamities, number four. Can, you're, seeing, you're feeling that? When we pray for them. When we seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, to help them. That is forgiveness. And friends, that is no wimpy definition. It reaches, doesn't it? Let me just show you in Scripture a survey of these points 
because I think this is the greatest short, concise view of true biblical forgiveness. Watch this as it builds up. Resist the thoughts of revenge, Romans, Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So forgiveness says this. I will not exact revenge for what you did against me. That's the release. I may have every right injustice to say you harmed me therefore you owe me and I want something back and I will exact that revenge in one way or another forgiveness says no to that it releases the offense Hmm. trusting in the God who is righteous and just who sees all He will repay. That's not my job. That's his job. Number two, don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Don't respond to a sin with sin. That's just exactly what the enemy wants you to do. No, hey, pastor, you don't understand. She did this. He said that. Okay, no denying it. I'm not suggesting that that wrongs took place. In fact, forgiveness is not just pretend like it didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness remembers what happens and says, I release it. I will not respond with sin. Number three, forgiveness wishes the person well. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. This is not natural, is it? It's not natural. Bless someone who's cursing you. Number four, grieve at their calamities. Proverbs 24, verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And here's the reality, friends. God does sometimes repay. And sometimes I wonder if his vengeance is exacted in this life in ways that are directly connected to offenses that have been wrapped up in things we've been a part of. When that happens, if that happens, if they drop dead, don't rejoice, but grieve. Why? Because they need grace. They need forgiveness, like you have tasted in the gospel. We trust the Lord who avenges. But if he does, don't rejoice. Grieve. Pray for them. This is a big one. (laughs) Oh, man, you talk about like the antonym of anger and bitterness is, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would just bless this person. Help them. Grow them. Open their eyes. Strengthen them. Help them to see and soften to you. Praying for an enemy. Number six, seek reconciliation with them. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We are not to be the kinds of people who are, it's us versus them. That's just the way it is. No, 
our goal is to be at peace with all men, if at all possible, so far as it depends upon us, as on the believer side. We can't change what they're going to do, but we are to seek peace as much as possible. And then number seven, be always willing to come to their relief. This is a, a, a classic verse, Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. But it was a simple little thing. Now, that probably isn't going to happen to you kids when you're on your way to school, right? Oh, there goes my neighbor's ox. That neighbor who's just really been hard on us. No, but, but think about it. You're, you're, you're saying, rather than saying, Ah, serves him right. His donkey got out. Ah, he's going to have a terrible time. He shouldn't have done what he did to me. Right? Instead of that, that's revenge. You're saying, oh man, if that was my donkey, I would need help. He probably doesn't know. I'll go get the donkey and return it to him. Who knows what God might do when you return that donkey? Fascinating. The Lord raises the bar significantly from our cultural instinct of this. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What is Jesus saying? Well, we we must not conclude that repentance is so trite as sin, oh, I repent. Sin, oh, I repent again. Sin, I repent again. It's not like that. True repentance is a turning from sin. Jesus uses this case of seven times in one day to make his point. The point is, there is no number that you reach on forgiveness. In the Jewish culture, it was three. You get get three offenses, I'll forgive you three times after that, that's it. You're done. Jesus says, 70 times seven in Matthew, right? there's, There's no limit. It's Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. That's the surprisingly normal Christian life. It's endless forgiveness. That's that's what Christian living looks like. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Hmm. So faith and forgiveness, verse 5 and 6. The apostles, I think, rightly respond to this. Uh, Look at what they say. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Wow. Their response is, Lord, how in the world are we going to live this way? How could we ever live this way? That kind of forgiveness is way beyond our ability. We need more faith. Now, this is a fascinating thing. They're identifying their, their longing for this by a, a lack of, of, of faith. And, and they're, they're pointing to this thing and saying, we, we need an, an increase of faith. And Jesus tells this mini parable. The mustard seed he's used before, it's a tiny little seed. But the mulberry tree, this might be new for us. The mulberry tree is something he was nearby at least to be able to point to and say, this very tree, I'm standing on the roots. This tree, with a tiny measure of faith, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea. Now, look at the root structure of the mulberry. This is the mulberry fig or the sycamore fig. Uh, This one had some roots eroded by some water runoff, so you can see the root structure. 
This, can, can you imagine if you were putting a field in and you want to plant a crop and you hit one of these? We're talking days. There's no Kubota, right? We're talking you are out there laboring for days upon days to dig up this tree. Jesus says, if you have faith aside as a mustard seed, with a word, that tree is lifted and chucked into the sea. What's his point? Is he suggesting that the truly righteous and, and faith-filled people should go around throwing trees into the ocean? Is that, is that what he's saying? Is that what it looks like? The victorious Christian life is tree. Bam! Check it out. <laughs> Did it. This, this is what Jesus is getting at. You're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. When you feel that forgiveness is totally impossible, you're looking at your heart and you're feeling these roots and they are wrapped. You are bitter and you are hurt and you are angry and I can't believe what they did and I'm holding it and it's like the mulberry wrapped around my heart and I'm saying there is no way I can forgive. I can't do it. And Jesus said, it's not the measure of faith. Even the smallest amount of faith in the right place will uproot that tree. It's not about the quantity of our faith. It is about the object of our faith. Where do we look? If we look inside, we try to muster up all the strength we have, we will never be able to forgive. We don't have it in us. But when we look to Christ, we will find in the gospel a, a, a powerful forgiveness. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Whoever abides in me and I in him, Jesus says, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Think of that. You can't forgive on your own. There's no way you're going to get that mulberry tree out of your heart. But if you abide in me, all things are possible. Forgiveness can be found, even with the smallest measure of faith. So we meet commands like this in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as, as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, here comes the command, so you also must forgive. Wow. That's the call. It is the surprisingly normal Christian life. Forgiveness. Day after day after day after day. Now, verses 7 through 10, all to him I owe. All to him I owe. We just say this, there are two different ways to walk the Christian life. One way is to make much of me, and it's kind of a man-centered way. And God is just like, oh, I love you, you're so awesome, and I just want everything that you want, and I just want you to be like the, the most awesome thing ever, and I'm here for you and all your desires, right? We've been here before. That's man-centered. That's not God to be clear. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who is. The God who is is over here, and he is radically God-centered. And he says, I created you for me, for my glory, to obey me, to be holy as I am holy, to shine my excellencies 
in the earth everywhere you go. So you exist for me, for my holiness, for my glory, for my display of righteousness and beauty. Now listen to these verses and see if you, if you can discern what Jesus is operating in, either man-centered or God-centered. Verse 7. Will any of you who has a, a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? The answer would be no, right? The answer then continues. He, will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? The answer there would be yes. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, and this is right, it's right for us to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Wow. Do you see the radical God-centeredness that Jesus is teaching us here? Who is at the center of all things? It is not the servant. The servant is there for the master, not the other way around. When we sing this song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That is my allegiance. That is my obedience. That is my joy in serving. I don't somehow muster up credit with him, be like, well, you know, Lord, I, I did forgive that person. Pat on the back. You know, what do I get? I deserve something, right? No. Normal Christian living is this. I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. And when I finish that, I say, I am an unworthy servant. I have only done what's my duty. Why? Because I have been defined by forgiveness. A forgiveness that I point to every time I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. We are the servant. He is the master. We are a people that are to be defined by the forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ. And that is to show up in our forgiveness day after day, day after day. Forgiveness is our joyful Christian duty. It's our joyful Christian opportunity. So our response this morning is this. Just, just ask the question. Uh, forgiveness is, is not optional for the Christian. It's not optional for you, friends, or me. If you're here right now, and you're aware already, the Spirit of God has pinpointed a person, a situation, a past event in your heart, and it's there, and you're like, okay, I don't want to think about that right now. Just listen from the Scripture, hear from Christ. This is not optional, believer. This is your opportunity. Is there a mulberry tree in your life? It could very well be that that tree is just cranking down on your soul. It's sucking the life out of your joy and your walk with God. Every time you take communion, 
You're suppressing the mulberry tree, and and you're saying, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to ignore that. I won't go there. And Jesus is saying this morning, no, we have to go there because you carry my name, and you have tasted of forgiveness that gave you eternal life. This is who you are now. You're forgiving. You You are a forgiving person. Who is the mulberry tree in your life? What situation has rooted bitterness or anger or whatever toxic, uh, just lingering effects on your life? How can you ever forgive? I'll tell you this. With the tiniest measure of faith, look to Jesus Christ. Look, Look to him. Say, Lord, give me the grace to release this offense to you. Help me to do this, this true forgiving work. I don't want revenge. You didn't take revenge on me when I deserved it. I want to bless and not curse. You prayed for me as you took my sin. I want to release. I want to be free. I want to be free. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come now to do the serious work of the heart. Spirit, even now we pray that you would be stirring and working and, and accomplishing what we cannot on our own. We thank you, Lord, for your commands, the commands that are clear in your word and all. Forgive us, Lord, for our, our tendency to pick and choose. I pray that as a church we would grow in our quickness to forgive, to release to you, to to truly trust you in faith, to be the one who is just and who will avenge. I pray that we would be those who would be marked by soft, tender hearts of kindness and compassion, even toward those who would, would be counted as enemies. Father, we reach deep to the gospel to accomplish this. We cannot do this on our own. We need your grace. Come even now and flow in power through the saving gospel of Jesus that we have experienced that has changed us and provide the grace that we need, the strength, the courage to release and forgive. Uproot the mulberry tree, we pray, Lord, for your glory and for our joy that we could make much of you in granting forgiveness and being those who are quick to do that for those who have offended us. Be glorified, we pray, in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.